Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be with you all. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to uh, the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 13. Now, depending on your uh, age this morning, you may remember uh, a TV show in the 90s uh, called Dallas. It was basically an evening, uh, for lack of a better way to say it, it was an evening soap opera. It was uh, the decade-long saga of the Ewing family, an oil empire. There was backstabbing, inbreeding, lust, greed, and it was a sad and sorry mess. Uh, Hopefully, you just know about it and didn't absorb too much of it. That story, uh, sadly, in light of the text that we look at today, may seem uh, somewhat uh, tame. Uh, The Bible is not shy. I think we could say today that the Bible is frighteningly transparent. Uh, This is a text that, as a pastor, you might rather kind of skip over and hope that no one notices, that you just kind of walked by that one. Uh, We're not going to walk by it. I would love to walk by it. But if we do that, we miss the example and truth that God is seeking to proclaim to us through this difficult scenario that uh, falls on the pages of Scripture today. And here's what I would say to you. Uh, You and I are naive and uninformed if we think that the stories of the Bible are without precedent in our day. If you just watch a little bit and think a little bit about the news that you hear over the past decades about presidents in America or about leaders around the world, you realize that the ancient world isn't that far away from us. It may be distant in terms of years, 3,000 years away, this story. But the details of the story are sadly common. As a pastor, one of the most difficult things uh, that I have had to deal with along the way Uh, is the tragedy of stories like this, secret, hidden, sad, damaging to families and people. So as we read through this text and as we study this text, we're studying it asking God to show us why he caused it to be recorded, to be inspired in the text of the Old Testament story. Why is it there? What do I need to learn from it? And how will it help me? You know, all of us face seasons of trouble. David is now moving into an an inevitable season of trouble. Uh, Nathan the prophet has prophesied that over David's life. David has sown wild seeds in his life, and Nathan the prophet has promised him that the reaping process is about to begin in his life. David is about to face a season of trouble. We all face seasons of trouble, don't we? Sometimes we face troubles that are from without. Sometimes we face troubles that come from within. Troubles from without tend to be things like natural disasters, a fire that burns a house, a flood, uh, cancer. A premature death, an accident. But the truth is that troubles that come from within tend to bring us together, don't they? Uh, or the troubles, I'm sorry, from without tend to bring us together. We tend to move together and be stronger and better as a result of those things. It's the troubles from within that are more difficult. They come in the form of pressure, tension, neglect, unforgiveness, bitterness, and heartbreaking hatred when children repel and parents walk in the flesh. These pressures tend to tear us apart. And what this text is going to do is it's going to walk you through an inciting incident 
the, the tragic circumstance, then it's going to lead you into the collateral damage or the effect of it upon others, and then it's going to move us into the power of grace. Okay, so I want you to walk through those three steps with me as we uh, work our way through the passage that is before us. Verse 1 introduces the main characters. So 2 Samuel 13 and verse 1, it says, In the course of time, Amnon, the son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Now listen to verse 2. Abnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar, so you begin to understand the nature and perversity and sadness of this situation. Tamar is the half-sister of Amnon, and he is attracted to her. The text says that he loves her, but we know that that kind of love is, is a love that the Greek uses the word eros, erotic-type love. It is purely selfish and disgusting and disgraceful, and it is the kind of love that is beginning to consume Amnon to the point that he becomes sick. And what the text tells us in verse 2 is Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. So that begins to uncover a bit of the idea of the motive. It's, it's stated in a very euphemistic fashion. It means that he wants to assault her. That's the nature of what this text describes. Now, Tamar has a full brother named Absalom. She is the half-sister of or half uh, sibling with Amnon. So let's look first at the inciting incident that this text uncovers. It's tragic, it's dark, it's sinister, and it is real and much more common in our culture than any of us often know or would like to admit. The inciting incident. Amnon desires a relationship with her, but he It seems impossible for him to do anything to her. Verses 3 to 5. We find that Amnon has a friend named Jonadab. He is his advisor. And the text simply says this. Jonadab is crafty. He's devious in his intentions and desires. And so he begins to counsel Amnon about how he can have what he wants. Even though what he desires and wants is well outside of the realm of God's desire for his people. And so he gives to Amnon a plan. He convinces Amnon that he should lay in his bed, feign that he's sick, call for his dad, King David, to come, and express to his father that he desires for his sister, Tamar, to come and to cook food for him and feed him. And there's something, as you read the text, that it's like, why doesn't David get this? Why doesn't he understand that there is something on the face odd about the request of Amnon. David foolishly in verses 6 and 7, and I believe knowingly at some level, I think he suspects that something's not quite right, but he concedes. David is in a uh, diminished frame of mind because of the sin and the effects of it that he has been going into on his own. And so he sends his daughter into this circumstances. Verses 8 through 13 of the text account for us the sad circumstance when Amnon seduces his sister Tamar. She happens to be a godly woman. And so she resists this this affront from him. She appeals to the fact that he in this would disgrace the nation of Israel and says, what about God? What about the effect on me and Amnon? What about you and your future? You're the oldest son of King David. 
What will the reputation be? What will the effect of this be on all of us? Verses 14 through 18 chronicle the fact that Amnon ignores all that she has to say. And in a selfish, disgusting, and hell-bent way, he ignores, overpowers, violates in a horrific fashion, fashion, and then in anger discards her because she would not comply with his desires. So he abuses and uses and discards. Sad. And what Amnon in this does is he sets in motion his own demise. Now can I say this very quickly? This type of aggression is not uncommon in the world that we live in. When sexual passions have become unfettered, God's purposes for the physical relationship in marriage mocked and disregarded, its purposes ignored, the devastation and the result becomes uncontainable. We see the sad demise of morality in our country. And when I think about God's biblical standards and the way that my culture, where I live, my world, tends to think. Here's the thought that tends to run through my mind often. I live in a culture where what is legal and common is not always moral and best. Does that make sense? We live in a world that has said, well, if it's legal, it must be moral and best. And I believe a Bible-believing Christian can't adopt that perspective. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's best. And what happens is, in a culture where sexual freedom takes over, like in our world, there is a rise of promiscuity. The availability of pornography cheapens and objectifies women. Sex outside of marriage is eroding the sacredness and beauty of marriage. And the foundation of the home, as a result, is devalued and disregarded. And lives are broken. Okay, and so this text points to brokenness, but I don't want us to say, look at what happened 3,000 years ago without realizing that it is infecting our culture and the church of Christ. We need to recapture our heart for God, for what is moral and for what honors Him, not for what's legal and allowable. May God help us to be a light to the world that God has called us to. You see, the reason Tamar objects to this, the reason she cries out when Amnon seeks to abuse her, is she's concerned about the reputation of the people of God. She says to Amnon, such a thing should not be done in Israel. God has called us to be a light to the world. And how we live, our morality matters. So may we as the church arise. May we truly be the people of God who live his truth. And I would encourage you as a Christian, especially as a young person, know what God says about sexual morality. And secondly, be committed to obey him in every way possible. Just be committed to that kind of life. Well, the text goes on to tell us that once this tragedy has occurred, there is the Inevitable and unavoidable collateral damage or the fallout of this circumstance. The word of the circumstance uh, comes. Uh, Tamar leaves this house of repute and shame. And she tears her garments. The Bible tells us in the earlier part of this chapter, she was wearing the beautiful garment, an ornate garment that symbolized purity and virginity. 
And as she comes out of that house, now used and having lost that precious gift, the Bible says that she tears her garment, puts ashes on her face, and holds her hands on her head. And what is it? It's a sign in the ancient world of mourning. As she comes out of the house, she runs into her brother, Absalom. And Absalom looks at Tamar. He sees the grief and he sees the sadness. And he says to her one question. Were you with Amnon? Has he been with you? She says, yes. He says, keep that to yourself. And what Absalom does is he, as he moves into this situation, he knowingly asks and then he moves to protect his sister who has been misused and discarded. Now, verse 21 says this. When King David heard all of this, he was furious. And that's it. That's it. David doesn't move. He doesn't act in justice. Truthfully, from the Old Testament, the penalty that Amnon deserves is death for what he has done to his sister. And David is the king. He is the God-appointed man to bring justice in his family and in his nation. And he is simply passive and emotive. All he feels is frustration and anger and rage builds within him. But he refuses to do anything. He has lost his moral courage and clarity. The guilt that is penetrating his being stifles him and renders him unable to act. And I think that's a warning from the text for all of us. Be sure that you guard your heart so that you can be an instrument of God's to promote righteousness in the context of your world, in your family, in your workplace, in your community. That God can use you, protect your heart. Verse 22, it says, And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad, but he hated Amnon. Because he had disgraced his sister, Tamar. Now what this text simply tells us is that a, 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 a bitterness emerges in this account. Um, a desire for revenge on Absalom's, Absalom's part that at one level we understand, right? When I, when I look at this, I say, I kind of get why Absalom feels the way he feels. He is a dad who is angry but refuses to, to do anything. So for two years, the text is going to tell us, Absalom is in his heart planning and devising a way to bring the justice that the king has failed to bring. Now let me say this also. I am not in any way, nor does the Bible in this context, seek to justify the actions of Absalom towards his brother Amnon. Okay, that work is in the hands of the government, but the government has fallen down, and when the government falls down, what happens? People begin to take things into their own hands. There's something in human nature that knows that justice is needed, and when it doesn't come, it tends to corrupt the culture. In this account, the Bible tells us that Amnon begins to plan. He begins to uh, seek a way. To resolve the situation. Now the text is going to go on to say. That two years later. It's the time for the shearing of sheep. Okay so these people were shepherds. And so it's time to shear the sheep. That was typically a time of celebration. Okay and I want you to note in the text. Just, just something. Very very quickly. In verse 26. 
Absalom is inviting all of the king's sons to come to this sheep shearing celebration. But that sheep shearing celebration is taking place in the midst of all of the bitterness and resentment and vengeful spirit that Absalom feels. So verse 23, it says, two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor near the border of Ephraim, he invited the king's sons to come there. Absalom went to the king and said, your servant has had the shearers come. Will the king and his attendants please join me? David, the king says, no, uh, the king replied, all of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. If I come with my entourage and all of my security, it's going to be a mess, so I'm not going to come. Although Absalom urged him to come, he still refused to go, but gave his blessing instead. Verse 26. Then Absalom said, if not, please send my brother Amnon to come with us. Now, I want you to notice what happens next. It tells you that David is just completely falling down. He can't, he can sense when wrong is coming, but he can do nothing about it. Please send Amnon. The king asked him, why should he go with you? And folks, I want, unmistakably, please understand this. King David knows that there is something brewing in the background because of his passivity. He wants to avoid it, but he doesn't have the, 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 the masculine courage to step up and be the man of God. And so he continues to hazard his family. Here's what you're going to find. In the text, he's going to send Amnon, even though in the back of his mind he's thinking, I shouldn't be doing this. So one of the aspects of collateral damage that's falling out of this story is the king who sent Uriah into war to have him killed has sent his daughter into tragedy and now sends his son to death. And here's what Nathan the prophet said. He said to David, David, the sword will never depart from your house. That this act that you have done as a king will begin to haunt and affect deeply the rest of your life. The grace of God is there, but the effects and consequences of your sin are going to begin to well up. They're going to, they're, those seeds that you sown are going to be manifest. And so in the text, you find that Amnon goes to the sheep shearing festival with a number of the king's sons. They all come on their mules. And Absalom says to his soldiers, he says, when the party is cranked up, I want you to take out Absalom. And that's what happens. Absalom finally gets his revenge on Amnon. And Jonadab comes back to King David He lets him know that the word first comes back, all the king's sons have died. Absalom's killed them all. And the word comes back is, no, that's not exactly right. Only your oldest son, the heir apparent to the throne, is dead. And David goes into a season of brokenness. And Jonadab comes to King David and he says in verse 32, if you look at that with me, it says, he says, only Abnon is dead. This has been Absalom's express intention ever since the day that Amnon raped his sister Tamar. And so all of a sudden you find here's this collateral damage picture that falls apart in front of David who sits passively, unable to act, unable to protect. And in this sense, He will be deprived of all three of his children. Why? Because Tamar has been lost to disgrace. Amnon has been lost to death. And what the text will tell you two times, verse 34 and verse 37, 
after this event, Absalom knows there's no going back to Jerusalem. And so he flees to a place called Gesher. And as this day ends, David is experiencing a great and traumatic loss. All of his children, his three precious children, are gone. Now, what happens next in the story? Well, the Bible tells us that Absalom fled and went to Gesher. And in verse 38 of chapter 13, it says that he stayed there for three years. Verse 39, or 39 says, And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning the death of Amnon. So and we all know this. Over time, the, the grief, the sadness, the, the heartbreak, it begins to fade away. There's a numbing effect, but there's the intensity of it. It starts to, you kind of get used to the new normal, even though it is broken. And that's what's going on for David in this story. He's longing for Absalom, but what does he do? Once again, he does nothing. And so Joab, verse 1 of chapter 14, it says, Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. He was one of David's close advisors, a general in his army. He's close to the king. He knows that at some level, David wants Absalom back. But because of the brokenness in David, there, he, he's not getting the gospel of grace. He's not getting the good news that there's hope for sinners even though he's experienced that there's a forgetting that's happening for him. And so he, he wants to have him back, but he doesn't know what to do. And then that takes us into the story that's told in chapter 14 that speaks about the resolution of the tension or the resolution of the difficulty that has arisen in the life of David. Joab, knowing that the king is heartbroken over his son not being there, sends to a village called Tekoa. It's about five miles away from Jerusalem. He finds there a wise woman, a woman who is crafty in, 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 in telling a story that gets to the heart of the matter. And so he, he brings her and he says to her, I want you to go to King David and I want you to ask him, I want you to present your trouble to him. When you walk in, demonstrate on your face concern. So she walks in before the king. And he, he sees the concern on her face, and then she begins to tell to the king a story about why her heart is so troubled. It's a story that has an end in mind, or a plan, or a purpose, to deeply affect the heart of King David so that he will invite Absalom to come back to Jerusalem. Remember, that's what Joab knows. David wants Absalom to come back, but he can't get himself to figure out a way to do it. And so this woman comes dressed in the clothes of mourning. David says in verse 5, what's troubling you? What, what's got you? And it's interesting that David, because of his own personal emotive experience, can, can begin to read people. He sees the brokenness and the sadness that's on her face, and he says, tell me your story. And so she begins to tell a story of her two sons, her only surviving heirs. She says, my two sons were in a field. They began to fight with each other. In that fight, one of my sons killed his brother. And then she says, and now the, the, the family wants me to execute justice upon that son who killed his brother. But she says, but if that happens, then there will be no heir to take on our name and no heir to take care of our property. And there's subtly underneath of it the idea that those that want her to kill the other brother, the only heir left, are seeking to get their hands on the inheritance. Well, David starts to get worked up a little bit. The story begins to attract his heart. It should sound profoundly familiar to him, shouldn't it? 
And I love what happens. David said to the woman, verse 8, Go home, and I will issue an order on your behalf. And the woman's going to, every time David makes a promise, she wants him to go higher and higher. Okay? She wants him to be more in in the circumstance. So notice what happens. He says, I'll issue an order on your behalf, a protective order for your son. He won't have to die. But the woman from Tekoa said to him, let my lord the king pardon me and my family, and let the king and his throne be without guilt. The king replied, if anyone does anything to you, bring them to me. And they will not bother you again. Well, you've got to love the way this is ramping up, right? Go to the next interaction. She said to him then, then let the king invoke the Lord his God. Bring God into this. Make it more sincere and earnest to prevent the avenger of blood from adding to destruction so that my son will not be destroyed. See, her ultimate concern is not just an order. She wants it stronger. And what has David said? As surely as the Lord lives... Not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. Now, that's a fascinating promise, isn't it? It seems to me that uh, here, David is becoming a hero. You start to get a sense that, that the man is rising up. I, uh, in, in, in kind of uh, older vernacular, for those of us that are maybe 50 and beyond, it's like Clint Eastwood just arrived on the scene, right? I think in our modern parlance, we would say that like Captain America has showed up. Okay, David is just like, I'm the man. You have to wonder to yourself, in the back of his mind, as he hears the brokenness and the desire for revenge and the failure to restore, there's got to be something in the story that starts speaking to the heart of David. And you're going to notice what the woman of Tekoa does. After David says, I'll protect you, not one hair of your head, God forbid. It's like David is there. Then the woman said, let your servant Speak a word to my Lord the King. David says, speak. The woman said, Why then have you devised a thing like this, Absalom, against the people of God? When the king says this, I'll protect you. I'll make sure that the one that killed someone doesn't have to die. There will be grace. She says, when the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son. And there's the gotcha in the story, right? So there's a tension that rises, there's collateral damage, and now there is the hope of resolution. Yeah, David, do that for your son. See, all that she's telling, it's a pantomime, it's a story. It's not real, but it is so real for David, isn't it? And I, I love, I'm calling this last part, so we get the inciting incident, we have the collateral damage, this ugly fallout, and then we have this resolution, or we move from tragedy to hope through grace, right? That's what's happening. All of a sudden, David is like, yeah, you've got to bring him back. And she looks at him and says, David, you're the one. You've got to bring him back. You've got to exercise forgiveness and grace and bring back someone who deserves the judgment of God. Yes, yes. But it's time to demonstrate grace. And, and I want you to think of this next verse because this to me is some of the purest Old Testament gospel that I have ever seen. She says, like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. 
Amnon, yeah, he's dead. My other son in the story, he doesn't know it's not a real story yet, but he's dead. They're like water on the ground. You cannot get it back, David, no matter what you do, no matter how long you keep Absalom away. You can't raise up Amnon. He's gone. It's in the past. Don't cry over spilled milk. And she pleads with him. Here's what she says. Look at the next part of the verse. But death is not what God desires. It's not what God wants. He devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. Folks, that is the purest gospel. He, God, devises ways that the one who deserves to be banished may be banished no more. That is that he may be brought out of brokenness into hope and relationship with the king of kings. Folks, let that settle in. Here's what that means. It means it doesn't matter what you've done. It's not that your sin is without consequence. David has sown and David is reaping. But David has been covered by the grace of God, forgiven of heinous crimes. And Absalom needs the same, and so do each one of us. And when that truth settles into your heart, when your sin that causes you to feel banished from God, when you understand that God does not want death for you, he has devised a way for the banished one to be restored. Folks, that is amazing hope. So I end my discussion this morning with just three simple thoughts. I'll just try to tie this out for you. Number one, the cost of compromise is high. We've done a baby dedication this morning. Everyone that sits in this room with responsibility for others. I don't care what your age is. Okay, if you have responsibility for other people, you need to know that the cost of compromise in your personal life is higher than you can ever understand or estimate. The damaging results of what David's sin does to his family cannot be contained. He's forgiven. He's free before God. But there is this issue of consequence the compromise brings into our lives. And this story just ensnares his son and his daughter. Galatians 6 says this. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. Folks, I say that to you as a caution, as a warning. I don't do it to make you afraid. I do it because it's the truth. What you sow, you reap. So be very careful in how you live your life. Parents, remember, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Like father, like son. Those cliches are memorized because they speak truth. Live a godly life, dad. Live a holy life, mom. Fight sin, so that it doesn't infect your life. Don't sow those seeds. Sow seeds of righteousness and reap a harvest of joy in your life. The cost of consequences is high. Yes, the cost of good sowing is just as high and just as glorious. So that's the first truth. Your character, Dad, your character trumps your words and your discipline. How you live impacts your kids more than anything you ever say. Because how you live can destroy everything that you've ever taught in a moment. So I say to you, the cost of compromise is high. Secondly, the complications brought on by passivity are many. 
when David hears news of the moral failure of his son and the brokenness of his home, all he gets is anger and does nothing. As the king and as the father, he is the God-appointed leader of his home and of his people. And he fails to bring justice. And he lets it in the hands of his heirs, of his sons. And the result is horrific and heartbreaking. It's interesting, isn't it? That in the story told by the woman of Tekoa, David responds rather appropriately, doesn't he? he? He's like spot on. For what? Well, in that case, he's not dad. Who is he? He's acting as king. Dads, here's the principle I'll share with you. David was a better king than he was a father. Be careful. Be careful that the allurement of status and position and accomplishment in the workplace does not substitute for godliness. You may all agree, but I would like my daughters to think that my dad was a better father than he was a pastor. That's, that's the legacy we leave to our kids. Look at Tim Dory. He was a better dad than he was a school business administrator. Right? Dave Rader, he was a better dad than he was a teacher. Whatever your story is, a better dad. Folks, that's what your kids need. And you're going to have to break through the tendency to be busy and tired. And, and when you get home from work, you've got a man up, you've got a woman up, and begin to be an influence in your kids' lives. And let them see the glory of God working in and through the Spirit of God, affecting and changing and growing your life to love and know Christ. More is caught than is taught, someone has said, in parenting. Lead in grace and truth. And the last thought I want to give you is this. The power of the gospel brings hope in our brokenness, in our broken homes, in our troubled homes. The gospel of God's grace is where we find hope and victory. You see, the woman says to David, death and banishment is not what God wants. He devised a way for you, David, to be forgiven. You have to think that as David hears this, God doesn't desire that the banished be banished. He, desire, he devises a way. He makes a path for the banished one, the guilty one, to come back. And she could look at David and say, David, does that ring a bell? Uriah, Bathsheba, does it ring a bell? Let the gospel bell ring and respond as it calls you to live the life that God has called you to live. Let the power of grace and the gospel wash over your family. So that there is no room for bitterness, no room for vengeance, no room for pride, no room for brokenness. Dad doesn't tolerate it. Mom doesn't tolerate it because they love us. They're passionate about gospel living. And I think what the woman is saying is God forgave you. Now do the same for your son because forgiven people know how to forgive. Folks, if you have experienced the grace of God from your mate, if they have forgiven you, you ought to be living an incredibly thankful, gracious, and forgiving life. God devises a way. 
that the banished may be banished no more. Now, if we were a church this morning that teaches religion, here's what we'd be saying. You need to try harder. You need to work harder. You're banished from God. But if you do enough penance, enough indulgences, enough good things, you can work your way back to God. That is not what the text says. What the text says to a broken man like David and a broken son like Absalom who's guilty of murder is this. God devises a way that the one who is banished may be banished no more. And he does it apart from their death because he counts the death of Christ as theirs. Now here's the beautiful truth. Religion says, I devise a way to resolve my banishment from God. I work my way back into God's graces. I have a good day, I can pray. The gospel says a holy God takes the initiative. God devises a way. That's what our text says. That rebels like you and I can be brought back into relationship with a holy God. And I love the story of the prodigal son, right? The father made a way for the prodigal to be restored. And John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, captures this. God so loved the world that he gave, he devised a way. That, who, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God doesn't desire death. You know what God wants? God wants banished dads who are unbanished by his grace to rule in their families. He wants moms who are banished by sin to be unbanished by grace and restored to lead in their homes for the glory of God. That's what God desires. And when we as parents embrace and love and cherish and treasure gospel truth, we become the best parents that we could ever possibly be. We are banished from God because Jesus Christ was banished from God for us. He took our banishment so that we could be free and forgiven. Parents, I want to say this to you this morning. Let this truth, gospel truth, inform everything you do as a parent. Remember that every time you confront rebellion in the life of your child, remember your own rebellion against God. And it will make you a gracious and powerful instrument of God in the life of your children. As you point out sin, you don't overlook it, but you call them through grace to repentance and change. It's not overlooking. It's saying that's been covered through the blood of Jesus. Come, be forgiven, be cleansed, be made whole. This is a message that every sinner, every mom, every dad should love and treasure. Let this truth humble you and inform your parenting so that when you reach out to your children in corrective ways, as David failed to do, when you do it, you will will do it as one informed by grace. The goal is restoration, not vengeance, not bitterness, not judgment. The goal is restoration. The goal is that the rebel child who has... Spit in your face by the grace that God demonstrates can be brought back into a right relationship with mom and dad. Okay, that's the gospel. Our lives may be messy and sinful like David's, but I have to say this this morning. The life of David gives me hope. Because here's what I think. If God could work in the life of a man like David, There's hope for every man in this room. Please understand and grasp that truth. If God could save David, there's hope for you.
Don't let the lie of the evil one taunt you and oppress you with guilt that Christ has borne. Don't fear banishment from God. Know that in Christ there is a way back to God to which you contribute nothing. You simply follow his direction and come, repenting of your sin and trusting in his rich grace and the blood of Christ. That's it. That's biblical hope. That's gospel-driven hope. That's the hope that resolves these deep tensions of this kind of a story that make me shudder and want to avoid this text. I didn't want to preach this text. But how do you say this in a way that's appropriate in a public setting? But when you start to get to the target of grace and gospel truth and God devising a way, I have something to say. Even for someone like Absalom. Even for someone like Amnon, even for someone like David, even for someone like Tim Hoff, there's hope. Because God initiates and devises a way that a banished man can be banished no more. Death is not what he desires, but it is what we get for our sin apart from Christ. If you've never trusted Christ, I want to say to you this morning, cry out to him. And say to him this morning, Jesus, I see you in a different light. Not as a religious symbol hanging somewhere but as a Savior who hung on a cross to bear the price for my sin so that I could be restored and forgiven. And that truth, grasped, treasured, will change your entire life and will bless your family for the glory of God. May God help us to live in gospel truth. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Father, I pray that if someone is here this morning who has tried to climb the ladder of religion to get to God, Father, I pray that they would realize that there is an elevator in the cross of Christ. And all they have to do is, by faith, get on board and say, Jesus, take me home by your grace. I am a sinner. Forgive me and save me and rescue me. Jesus, this morning we say thank you that you surrendered to the Father's plan, who in grace and mercy through you devised a way that banished ones may be banished no more. And so there's hope, Lord, that I can proclaim to every person in this room in the name of your Son, Jesus. And Father, I pray that if there's someone here this morning who senses their banishment, who senses distance from God, I pray that they would know that it's real and that it can be forgiven because God devised a way through Jesus that the worst sinner in the world could find hope. And that is why we sing to you, Lord God, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind. But now I see it because God has rescued and restored. God, make this truth precious to every parent, to every child in this room, every grandparent in this room, so that we will be gospel-saturated in our interactions with one another. We pray this in the glorious name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.